Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In 1984, a labor reporter named Robert Levering and an editor named Milton Moskowitz wrote a book that made a big splash. But the splash may not have been quite big enough. The book was called The 100 Best Companies to Work For in America, and it became a bestseller. And they found then that the companies on the Great Place to Work list outperformed uh, the companies that weren't on that list. Jeffrey Pfeffer is a professor at Stanford Graduate School of Business who says study after study has shown that good workplaces are better for workers and for companies' bottom lines. And it is nonetheless the case that companies haven't emulated uh, those practices. So we've known about this stuff for 30 or 40 years. We've known the health effects of workplace stress for decades, and we haven't done anything. Pfeffer says the costs of not doing anything are tremendous. He's the author of the book Dying for a Paycheck, which this time of year, right around Labor Day, seems particularly salient. It argues that lots of studies prove something that few people realize. Our jobs are a major health risk, resulting in, for a number of reasons, 120,000 deaths a year in America. Which, by the way, I believe to be a low estimate, even though that would make it the fifth leading cause of death in the U.S. Much of the anxiety that surrounds jobs has to do with a lack of control, not knowing what your hours will be, worrying that you'll get laid off, being micromanaged. Pioneering work on this lack of control was done by a scholar named Sir Michael Marmot, who appeared on this show a couple of years ago. Marmot has shown that those with power at work tend to do a lot better than those without it. We calculated in England, and the figures would be similar in the US, if not more dramatic, that if you're in the middle, you have eight fewer years of healthy life than if you were at the top. And eight fewer years of healthy life means earlier onset of decline in grip strength, earlier onset of difficulty walking, earlier onset of decline in mental function. Jeffrey Pfeffer, the professor at Stanford Business School, says there are lots of models of successful companies to emulate. He points to healthcare companies like DaVita, which provides kidney dialysis, and Southwest Airlines, and SAS, which is a software company. And then there's Patagonia, a clothing manufacturer that Pfeffer says shows their employees they care about them. They have organized their work so that 26 times a year you get a three-day weekend. Uh, They have organized their work so that if the surf's up, you can take off and go. Um, Because the theory is that I've given you, I've hired good people. You're an intelligent person. You will get your work done. If the surf's up and you go to surfing, you'll work some other time when the surf's not up. It's going to be okay. But it's not all surfing and long weekends. So one of the things when I interviewed their head of HR, he said, we measure the percentage of working age women who returned to Patagonia after giving birth, and they do all kinds of things um, to make that easy for them. And in Patagonia's case, 99% of the women who are working for them, who when they get pregnant and have a kid, return to Patagonia after delivery. And that is something that they hold themselves accountable for. Instead, what most American workers have, Pfeffer argues, is economic insecurity, a workplace that does not help with the task of balancing work and family, a sense that they're not being treated fairly, and a lack of autonomy. I could tell you that the epidemiological evidence on the effects of these factors plus some others 
on people's health and their mortality is significant, is profound, has been documented over, you know, decades. Uh, so there's an enormous epidemiological literature on the effects of work practices on people's health. Right. And one of the ways in which work practices affect people's health is directly. But the other way in which work practices affect people's health is through their effect on individual behaviors. So people who are stressed are more likely to smoke more. There's evidence mm -hmm. for that. They're more likely to drink more. Mm -hmm. They're more likely to overeat. They're more likely, as an article from a, in the New York Times by a psychiatrist said, we call it comfort food for a reason. They are more likely uh, to engage in illicit drug taking. They are less likely to exercise. So stress affects not only people's health directly, but through its effect on their individual health-relevant behaviors. What if a manager said to you, look, I understand what you're saying, but it's very important that I am on top of all the time what the people under me are doing, because what if they aren't like, what if they're not doing their work? Like, I, I need to be on top of things all the time. And like, you know, when you talk about work-family balance, it's great to have work-family balance, but my job as a manager is to make sure this company is productive. You know, I can't worry too much about people's families. Well, what I would say is two things. Number one, number I actually say three things. Number okay. one, it is it is not surprising to find that people who are stressed are more likely to quit. So stress leads to turnover. Turnover is expensive. Mm -hmm. Number two, it is not surprising, but of course, academic research demonstrates this thing, even though it's not surprising. It is not surprising to know that people who come to work sick don't do as well uh, on the job. Their productivity and their performance suffers. And number three, contrary to what managers may think, there is evidence at the national level, in a nice chart in The Economist magazine. There's evidence at the industry level, which I cite in Dying for a Paycheck. There's evidence at the company level that suggests that long work hours is negatively related to productivity beyond a certain point, yeah. and that we have known for 40 or 50 years through a variety of research studies that job autonomy, giving people more control and more say and not micromanaging them, leads to higher levels of engagement and higher levels of motivation and productivity. I think it's horrible to look at the Gallup data and find that worldwide only 15%, that's one five percent of people, are engaged at their work with the rest of the people being either disengaged or actively disengaged, which Gallup defines as basically trying to sabotage their employer. Hmm. You argue that things have gotten worse in the last two or three decades. What is pushing things to get worse and third of the effects on people's health to be worse? Well, I think there's several things that have caused things to get worse. Number one, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, in the 1950s in particular, CEOs saw their job as one of managing a set of relationships among stakeholders. There were customers, there were employees, there were shareholders, there was the community. And now it is all about the shareholders. So stakeholder mm. capitalism has been replaced by shareholder capitalism. Mm. Number two, Job tenure, as my colleague at Wharton, Peter Capelli, has shown, as among other people, job tenure has gone down. We have more people working under contract arrangements. There's a study that came out recently that shows that basically 94% of the job growth between 2005 and 2015 is with impermanent contract labor in the United States. So to the extent that I'm dealing with people that I don't see 
and that I don't know, I'm yeah. not going to feel as responsible for their well-being. And then there's the gig economy and the development of all of this software that permits me to monitor you and schedule you, which makes you feel in a much more precarious position. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about white-collar jobs versus blue-collar jobs. Uh, I mean, classically, I think people would think blue-collar jobs are worse for your health because the labor tends to be more physical. Maybe you're working in construction, you're working on a factory line. I mean, things could literally, you know, it's much more likely that an accident would happen to you, you'd fall, something would land on you, and that would be the the health risk of that job. But give me an overall sense, what is the health risk of a blue-collar job right now in America versus a white-collar job? Well, ironically, the health risks that you just described of, you know, accidents or uh, chemical spills, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration um, has largely taken care of those. And so the death toll and the illness toll from those have gone way, way down. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration, which I've talked to, understands very, very well the psychosocial risks, for instance, of workplace stress, as does the UK counterpart of OSHA, which would be the health and safety executive. Mm -hmm. And they just had a report out recently on the tremendous number of workdays lost to workplace stress. Mm -hmm. So while OSHA and HSE have understood the the consequences of workplace stress for various reasons, including governments and politics and funding, they have not been able to intervene. So at the moment, I see lots of pain, even in the Silicon Valley, Hmm. people working exceptionally long hours. One of the things I talk about in Dying for a Paycheck is the Palo Alto Medical Foundation, which sends out a mobile van to call on Highly paid engineers who, by the way, have health insurance as well as a lot of income, who believe that they are too busy to go in and see their doctor. And the wonderful quote from the head of the this PAMF program says, I've seen 30-year-old engineers with 50-year-old bodies. Hmm. And by the way, once you have a 50-year-old body as a 30-year-old, it's going to be tough to get the 30-year-old version of yourself back. <laughs> I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm talking with Jeffrey Pfeffer, author of Dying for a Paycheck. He's also a professor at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Um, So you write about the CEO of the insurance company, Aetna, and how Aetna changed its approach towards the health of its workers. Talk about that and talk about why, what prompted them to do that. Well, the CEO of Aetna had two, I think, life-changing experiences. Uh, One was he had an extremely severe a skiing accident, which left him in kind of chronic pain in one of his arms. Um, and they, they didn't even re- ever regain full use of that arm. And number two, his son um, had an incidence of uh, some relatively rare but important childhood cancer. And I think this brought home to him the fact that uh, that health risks and health care issues could, uh, could affect almost anybody. And so uh, Mark Bertolini is his name, did a bunch of things. He, number one, raised the salary of everybody at Aetna who was making less than 15 or $16 an hour to that 15 or $16 an hour level, uh, which, and we know that salary is related to health because income is related to health. 
So that was number one. Number two, he put in a bunch of other kinds of supplementary things, uh, such as yoga and stress reduction classes. And number three, he made sure that the that the people who work for Aetna were, were getting access to good health care and tried to improve the organization's culture with respect to health. So all of those things came out of a pers- personally transformative experiences that caused him uh, to change Aetna's approach to its workforce. Mm-hmm. And with all due respect, I think this is a fabulous story. It's wonderful. But when I hear this story and similar stories like Bob Chapman and Barry Waymiller, who one day saw the light and decided to change his organization's culture, I think this is fabulous. But I do not think people's health should depend upon the whim or wisdom of their CEO. Mm -hmm. I think people have a right to have a job that does not kill them. So why haven't other companies looked at Patagonia or SAS or, you know, Southwest, you talked about never laying anybody off, and looked at that and said, well, gee, Southwest is doing pretty well and Patagonia is doing well and they're selling a bunch of jackets and sweatshirts and everything. So if that worked for them, we could do that too. We could treat people really well. We could make it so that they didn't leave and there was less turnover. And like you said, turnover is expensive. So why aren't other companies doing that? You would have to ask the CEOs of those other companies. (laughs) What do you think? It it makes no sense to me. I really and truly don't know. When I sit in meetings and hear heads of HR obsess about their health care costs, because many large employers in the United States, most large employers in the United States are self-insured, which means they are responsible for their own health care costs. I don't understand why they're not addressing the workplace, which is where a lot of the cause of these high health care costs come. You know, uh, one of the quotes in the book is from Bob Chapman. And he says, you know, he, he stood, he says, I've stood in front of a thousand CEOs and said, you are the cause of the health care crisis. Three quarters of the disease burden in the United States, and by the way, in the world, according to the World Economic Forum, comes from chronic disease. Chronic disease comes, not exclusively, but importantly, from stress. Stress comes from work. So if we want to fix healthcare costs, let alone uh, people's well-being, and, and, and as Michael Marmot said nicely, how many years of good, productive, useful, healthy life they have, we need to look at the workplace. And why we're not doing that, I have no idea. But that's one of the reasons why I wrote Dying for a Paycheck. I am trying to wake people up to the seriousness of this problem, to the pervasiveness of this problem, and to the fact that the problem can, in fact, be fixed. Do you see governments either here in, in states, uh, federal, um, or any other place in the world, um, paying attention to the data that you've looked at, looking at sort of the healthcare harms from workplaces, and saying, "Whoa, you know, healthcare is a huge burden for this state, country, uh, you know, whatever it is," and and we should pay some attention here. Um, I think the United Kingdom has begun to pay attention to this. There was a commission, actually, Sir Michael Marmot was on that commission called the Atkinson Commission. Uh, But, you know, this is a political thing that's fraught with, you know, beliefs about whose responsibility it is to take care of employees and how much deregulation or regulation we're going to have of business. But to me, this is analogous to the environmental movement 40 or 50 years ago with respect to the physical environment. 40, 50 years ago, I had companies say, we can't afford to not 
pollute the air and the water and the ground because we would be uncompetitive. We can't compete with China or whatever. Mm-hmm. We can't afford to do this. This is a, this is costly. And we decided this was no longer tolerable. Sooner or later, we may decide uh, that uh, social pollution or human pollution is no longer tolerable either. But uh, in the meantime, we'll see. So th- there are governments. By the way, the New Zealand government said famously when they were confronted with these data, well, you know, this is work and it, there's nothing we can do about it. Well, so time will tell. I'm hoping that people, government people, employers and employees will wake up uh, to the seriousness of this issue. Because one of the questions that I'm often asked is what surprised me about all of this? It's worse than I thought. If you feel like you're in a workplace that's really not all that good for your health, that's not making you feel all that good about yourself, what should you do? Quit. A, con- a nice, concise answer. Well, so, and, and when people say to me, so here's the analogy I would draw. First of all, you start with the premise, which we've also demonstrated in a published paper, that many of the workplace exposures are as harmful to people as secondhand smoke in terms of their effects on self-reported physical health, mental health, having a physician-diagnosed illness, and mortality. So I say to people, you know, it is a nice, concise answer. If you were in a room that was filling up with smoke, what would you do? Would you say, well, you know, there's not a better room to go to? Would you give yourself a bunch of rationalizations? Or would you get out of that room? Mm -hmm. And this is exactly the analogy. If you're in a place that is jeopardizing your health, both physical and mental, and the two, of course, are related, you need to exit the room. And you just say, if if you're dependent on that money, just... Try to figure out a way to get a different job. That you can. There are within every industry better and worse workplaces. You can look at the great place to work less, the best place for the for working mothers. All of these lists. They span. All of these companies span a variety of industries. There are retailers. There are manufacturers. There are software companies. There are consulting firms. There are even law firms. Yeah, even though law firms are not always the healthiest places to work. So. There are better and worse workplaces within every industry and within every occupation. There are places where the CEO cares about the well-being of the people whose lives have been entrusted to that individual, and there are CEOs who don't care. And you are much better off with the former than the latter. Jeffrey Pfeffer is the author of the new book, Dying for a Paycheck, How Modern Management Harms Employee Health and Company Performance and What We Can Do About It. He's also a professor at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Jeffrey, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. got articles on the company culture at some of the places that Pfeffer praised, from Southwest Airlines to Patagonia to the software firm SAS. That's all at our website, innovationhub.org.